Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 24, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It's bright and early Friday morning, October 1st, and I am in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama. Also, I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. It is all about the orange T-Rexes. It's all... <laughs> in this neck of the woods, it is all about the orange T-Rexes. I'm not talking about Rugrats from Nickelodeon and Reptar from years ago. Was he orange? Was he Was he green? I do not recall. I do not recall. Tommy Pickles, Chucky... Um, Finster, I think, Chucky Finster, yeah. Uh, don't recall what color Reptar was. But it is all about the orange T-Rexes, which is the four- and five-year-old soccer team that I am the assistant coach of. That's right, my babies. Your boy is a soccer coach. Um, we do not talk about soccer on this show in our sports segment because I know nothing about soccer. I know about extra time and uh, the goalie and that it's low scoring and that's about it. I know Brazil and Germany are good at it. And uh, the U.S. men, not so much. The ladies are. But I don't know the rules and I never played. I tried to play at recess in the fourth grade and I kept kicking my friends in their shins over and over until they made me stop playing. And that is the extent of my soccer knowledge and experience. But hey, uh, my little girl wanted to play soccer, and I'm not the type of parent to just drop a kid off at practice. I'm not the type of parent to just give my kid over to other people and not be involved. Um, If my kids are going to be a part of something, then I am too. I'm going to learn. I'm going to research. I'm going to have fun. So that is how I wound up being the assistant coach of a four- and five-year-old soccer team called the Orange T-Rexes. See, every other team in the league, uh, they don't have names. They don't have names. They don't even give you names anymore. They just give you a jersey color, like the blue team, the orange team, the red team. But we're not playing that on our squad. We're a little Tyrannosaurus family. Um, We was going to have fun. We needed a team name. So uh, we, we we had four practices in our first game, 
And uh, you should have seen the looks on bystanders and uh, parents of the blue team, very boring, when our parents filled the stands yelling, come on, T-Rexes, <laughs> let's go, Orange T-Rexes. <laughs> and it's the perfect team name because kids love dinosaurs and also because in soccer, you can't use your hands and neither can a T-Rex. They can't use their arms. Because they're tiny, just like our players. Um, no, I'm having a lot of fun hanging out with my kid, um, getting to know these other kids. Uh, the head coach, he's great. Like we, we get along good. We both have the same attitude. Like It's all about kids having fun, gaining confidence, learning something about soccer, and making some friends. Like That's it. Uh, we did win 6-3. to three. Uh, I don't know if, if we officially keep score in our league. We don't, we're not even allowed to have goalies. Like the first two practices, we had kids practicing to be goalie because we're trying to figure out, like, who's not afraid of the ball? Like, who's going to stop the ball? And then we learned you can't even have goalies. Um, but we kept – I kept score. I don't know. After the game was over, uh, we shook hands with the other team, and we had a little team huddle before we broke it down, one, two, three, T-Rexes. And I let my squad know, hey – you won your first ever soccer game, six to three, and it was a lot of fun. The head coach was out on the field with the kids. Um, the coaches are the referees, which can only work in a four and five year old league. I cannot imagine when it starts getting more competitive that that is a good strategy. Um, but for us, we are the referees. So the head coach was out on the field. I was working the bench, getting the substitutions in, and uh, you know you're supposed to get. Everybody playing time um, as equal as possible. Don't want kids to be left out. Don't want parents to get upset. And so coming into that fourth quarter, it was time for me to pull some of the older kids and get our four-year-olds back on the field. They had played in the second quarter. That was all for them. And the fourth quarter was supposed to be also. And I couldn't find five people to put on the field because these four-year-olds were tired. They were tired. They were like, Coach West, please don't make me go back out there. <laughs> please don't make me play anymore today. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. I'm hot, Coach West. I'm hot. <laughs> I was begging kids, will you please go back out on the field? The other team got five people out there, that blue team, that boring old blue team. They got five people out there ready to go, like looking at their coach like, why ain't we starting? And I'm over here with my orange T-Rex four-year-olds like, hey. Coach West needs you to play. Please help your Tyrannosaurus family out and get on the field. Um, so I finally found a couple more, and we finished the game. And the kids were so excited to learn they, in fact, had won 6-3. So pretty much in a few weeks' time, I have become the greatest soccer coach on the history of the planet, assistant soccer, assistant to the head soccer coach, um, because we are undefeated. And we play our second game tomorrow morning, bright and early at 8.30 a.m. Because there is nothing that I would rather do with my life than be coaching assistantly some orange T-Rex four- and five-year-olds bright and early at 8.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Hey, really, though, this this is the part of parenting I've been looking forward to. Like, when my kids are old enough for me to be involved in sports and, and do different things with them. And this one has been especially fun because 
it ain't like baseball or basketball or some sport that I know. And so me and my daughter have been learning soccer together, and uh, I really enjoyed that. But uh, I love I love the Orange T-Rexes. Them are some great kids, and uh, we're apparently a pretty good soccer team too, and we're having a good time. Oh, man. Orange T-Rexes. What's up? Um, All right. Enough of that. Let's get to some comments and corrections from our last show, which was forever ago. Keystone 238, Hanobia 217, Townsend 132. We continue to grow our community on Twitter. We are up over 1,300 followers as of last night. You can follow us there, too, at In The Shed 4. That's the words In The Shed and the number 4. But did you know? Did you know that you can also listen to the show on YouTube as well? That's right. You can. We now have an In the Shed with Wes Anderson YouTube channel where you can find all episodes of the show. Uh, It's a great way to share the show with friends and family, and it's a brand new channel. So we only have like uh, four or five subscribers, so help us out. Help us out. Go to YouTube, look up our channel, and hit the subscribe button. We would greatly appreciate it. We would also appreciate if you would take just a minute of your time. You could even do it right now if you would like uh, to take out your phone, open the Apple Podcasts app, look up our show, click on it, and leave us a five-star review. Our little show is steadily growing thanks to you, our listeners, our tools, but we only have four reviews on Apple Podcasts. And we would love to have more as those reviews influence the algorithms, they affect our rankings and positioning. And the more reviews we get, the more ears we can get in front of our shed. We continue to grow in India, which now makes up 22% of our listening audience in the UK and Brazil as well. And a special shout out to the nation of Germany and our five new listeners there this week. Welcome to the family, Germany. You're a little bit late, but better late than never. On our last episode, we said that we would be talking about whether or not the moon landing was real or faked on this episode, but alas, that is not going to happen today. That will have to wait until next week because you see, to have that conversation, we are actually bringing on a guest, a very good friend of the show, and uh, I'm going to let who it is be a surprise, but that's happening on our next episode Uh, He couldn't make it to uh, record this week, so we're going to put that off one week. Uh, We switched up the game on you, but we're still going to have that conversation and look forward to it. That's all the comments and corrections this week. It's been 21 days since our last episode, so plenty of time for me to forget the numerous corrections that needed to have been issued. Uh, We got a great show for you tonight, but first, let's get to some listener emails. There were many of them. Uh, We picked out a few. Uh, By the way, by the way, by the way, got a a little bit of hate mail uh, this week complaining about how long uh, it's been in between the last few episodes of the show. Um, But but funny, the funny thing is, uh, this person also told me how much the show sucks, so... They complained that uh, I haven't uploaded new episodes in so many days, but also told me the show sucks. So like they, they hate the show, but they can't wait to hear it. So I, <laughs> I didn't know what to do with that. Uh, look, this is a weekly news show. It really is. We try to be. Uh, but the honest truth of it is I'm in a shed in my backyard. Like I do this for fun. I do this when I can. Like It matters to me because you matter to me, my tools. But 
sometimes life happens. Uh, had a bacterial infection last week and got sick. Um, family obligations that come up, things with work. Sometimes we get busy. So uh, the plan is every week to be out here and record a show, um, get it out to you, our listeners. Uh, we appreciate your patience hanging in there and listening to the show. Uh, sometimes it might be a couple weeks. Um, it might be three weeks. But we're going to shoot for uh, a show every week as often as we can. And that is that. That is that. Our first email comes to us from Stan L. from Jacksonville, Florida, who writes, Wes, why do you insist on reading the articles shared on your show? The podcast would be so much better if you just read the headline and offer your thoughts offhand. Offhand, Stan. Uh, Hey, Stan, thank you for the email. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, I don't know, man. Sometimes we we do a little bit more of that. Mostly, this is just how the show has begun, and uh, I'm leaving room for things to change as we get more comfortable, as we grow, as we attain more listeners, um, but honestly, that's just how I started out. Uh, rather than just kind of fill in the blanks, I want you to hear the whole article. I want you to know exactly what I have read so that when I talk about it, you can kind of connect the dots. I'm not about telling you what to think. I'm more about challenging you to think through the issues, the rumors, the stories of the day in each of these categories that we cover. Um, so sometimes we do that. I'm not opposed to that necessarily. Uh, but I kind of like the dynamic too when, when when you get the whole article, when we read the whole article. I feel like uh, when I read it for the first time in front of you and we're in there together that we're finding out this information at the same time. Tammy from Boston, who parks her car in the yard. That was so bad. <laughs> that was... <laughs> Tommy. Park your car in the yard. I just sound mentally mentally challenged. I don't sound like I'm from Boston. I got to work on that accent. I've done some bad accents on uh <laughs> on the 24 episodes of this show. I have done some bad accents. Um, Tammy, I apologize. <laughs> I apologize, Tammy. Tammy from Boston writes, Wes, how come you haven't shared any spooky stories from listeners lately? I really enjoy hearing them. Well, uh, it's a very good reason for that, Tammy, because um, listeners haven't sent me any. Uh, That's one of my favorite things, too. I love when you guys share your experiences of the paranormal with us, and I love to read those out during the email portion of the show. Um, So far, almost all of them that have been sent in, I have shared with you, the listening audience, other than one that was a little explicit, and this is a family show. Um, But I love to do that, and I would love to continue uh, we've gotten away from that simply because we haven't had those stories shared. So if you have a paranormal expor- experience, <laughs> words is hard. If you have a paranormal experience that you would like to share, you can email the show and we will love to share it with our audience. And finally, Jay from Kansas City writes, dude, I like that, Jay, dude, I love how you can take a completely, totally normal factual scientific story about plants ability to respond to sound and make it seem eerie i was cracking up at how you seem genuinely freaked out i love the show (laughs) hey jay uh we love you too buddy uh dude dude we love you too thank you for listening in kansas city i've been there once the barbecue is good i like the baseball team uh hope to go back to kansas city the reason why I seemed authentically freaked out is because I was authentically freaked out. (laughs) 
that story scared me. And I put things in the paranormal news segment like that sometimes, and I get grief from some of you guys. Uh, you know, we did the one about anesthesia. We did the one, uh, what was another example? But there's been a few times that we've done these stories that are scientific, and they're in the paranormal um, side of things because, uh, as we talked about on the first episode, the definition of paranormal that we're using are things that cannot easily be explained or that are out of uh, out of the ordinary when it comes to the ordered world, right? And um, plants being able to hear is out of ordinary to me. I had not heard that before. And it's creepy because I got a lot of plants around my house, around the shed right now. See, I'm getting... <laughs> I'm getting freaked out again just talking about it. It's creepy, Jay. It's creepy. And I appreciate you listening to the show. (laughs) That's all the listener emails this week. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. And plus, I just like to hear from you. I like to know who you are, where you're at, and, and what got you listening to the show, what parts of it you like, uh, what's going on with you. Um, and I even do my best to respond and write back. So uh, if you're hearing this right now, wherever you are in the world, take a couple minutes of your day. Write us an email at in the shed with West. That's the words, in the shed with West. All lowercase, no spaces, at gmail.com. Holler at your boy. All right, let's switch to this. Let's get to the news in the world of politics, and let's hit the headlines. Liberal outrage erupts at Nancy Pelosi for saying she has enormous respect for Senator Joe Manchin as he stalls Dems' agenda, writes The Blaze. Nation's most restrictive abortion law back in Texas court, according to the Washington Times. From the Hill, Biden approval rating slips to 50% in AP poll. Biden signs government funding bill to prevent shutdowns, says CBS News. And finally, China just made its boldest climate move yet, and that is according to Slate. Our first story in the world of politics, Biden has lost his patience with the negative press corps before six-month mark. President Joe Biden is increasingly dropping his Uncle Joe persona with reporters as pressure mounts on the White House to notch legislative accomplishments before the 2022 midterm elections. Biden's growing frustration with negative questions suggests the end of his press honeymoon, but it also poses problems for the White House communications team as reporters regain access to the president thanks to the easing of pandemic social distancing requirements. Obama White House spokesperson Eric Schultz dismissed complaints about Biden's outbursts as a desperate attempt to search for any critique of Biden since nothing else seems to stick. The president answers questions from reporters regularly, with respect and admiration for their role, he told the Washington Examiner. The White House deeply respects the role of journalists, with everyone fielding questions and answering them as truthfully and candidly as they can. But Biden has a history of being prickly when faced with questions he does not like, both from reporters and voters alike. His irritability can be contrasted with former President Donald Trump's hostility. Yet while it chafes with Biden's typically affable public image, It aligns with his reputation for berating staffers who, for instance, litter his speeches with jargon laypeople will not understand. Biden is not as apt as his predecessor at spinning an unwelcome question with a talking point or pivot to the message of the day, according to political and media historian Brian Rosenwald, who contended it was more a difference in personality than a difference in substance. 
In terms of Democrats, I think there's probably a certain frustration that comes from having to hear conservatives scream and shout about how liberal the media is, while also confronting reporters constantly criticizing them, focusing on negative things. But that's probably more at the staff level, he said. In essence, there's a bit of a tug of war always going on, he said. Presidents and their staff want to script everything and focus on positive stuff. The media wants to puncture that idyllic portrait and sees its role as holding the administration to account. For historian and journalism professor David Greenberg, the adversarial relationship between the president and the press is a bipartisan phenomenon. It goes back to Theodore Roosevelt, the first president of the modern media age. He wanted to control the agenda, what was reported on, how it was covered, he said. But the press believes it should set the agenda, and that to fall in line behind the president's wishes is mere stenography. The trend was exasperated during the mid-1960s after the Vietnam War and Watergate fur, though there are examples of the odd exchange even from when the dynamic was more sympathetic and cozier, Greenberg explained. I don't think you can see all that much difference between Republicans and Democrats. They all feel the media are being too hard on them, trying to trap them, harping on scandal or failure, and so on, he said. Biden chided reporters last week who were peppering him with questions about the U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan's Bagram airfield. The U.S. operation had been headquartered at the airfield, and the personnel departure effectively ended the country's military mission despite the Taliban's recent rise. I want to talk about happy things, man, Biden said last week. <laughs> like ice cream. <laughs> it's the holiday weekend. I'm going to celebrate. There's great things happening. He caught himself after criticizing the negative questions going on to describe them as legitimate. Only three weeks earlier, Biden had lectured reporters about being negative before boarding Air Force One after his summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Geneva. He had snapped at a correspondent during his press conference asserting that she was in the wrong business if she did not comprehend his approach to foreign policy. She had asked the president why he was so confident Putin would change his behavior. Look, to be a good reporter, you gotta be negative. You gotta have a negative view of life, okay? It seems to me the way you all, you never ask a positive question, he said on the tarmac at Geneva Airport after apologizing to the journalist. I mean, look guys, I'm going to drive you all crazy because I know you want me to always put a negative thrust on things, particularly in public, he said. Biden's interactions with reporters mostly become inflamed if they ask him about his family. During the 2020 campaign, Biden mocked a Fox News correspondent as being classy after he pressed the president about his son Hunter fathering a daughter in a drug-induced one-night stand. That's a private matter. You're a good man. You're a good man. Classy, Biden said. Biden was similarly, similarly, similar, similarly triggered by an Iowa voter who asked about Hunter's business dealings with Ukrainian oligarchy-linked natural gas company Burisma Holdings. The president blasted the man as a liar. Yeah, so um, the president is growing tired of the negative press coverage and the hard questions that he's being asked. And I say, welcome to being president? Well, I mean, I, I think that comes, comes with the territory. Did you, not, had, did you not pay attention the last four years? Um. The guy before you, though some may argue a lot of it was his own fault, he dealt with a lot of negativity from the press. Um, and in fact, he made many more appearances and answered more questions. Um, this whole relationship dynamic between President Biden, his administration, and the press is bizarre. Uh, if you're being honest, it's a little bizarre. 
Uh, how many times have we seen Joe Biden um, say things that we pointed it out here in the past? He, he'll say things like, I've been instructed to call on, and then he'll pick a reporter. Um, so we know that ahead of time, he's got all the ones that he's going to call on. And he's not calling on Fox News. They get a question in from time to time, but in these scripted situations, he's not calling on right-leaning news organizations. It's the left-leaning ones. And he's still unhappy with the coverage that he gets. It's going to be a long four years for you, buddy. Have some ice cream. Chill out. It's the media's job to ask probing questions. It's not their job to celebrate all your wins. Um, we've said on the show all the time that every president, no matter who it is when they're in office, no matter what side of the aisle they come from, they do some positive things and they do some negative things, right? So from time to time, should we announce the positive things that the Biden administration accomplishes and should we trumpet those things? Absolutely. Absolutely. But A, the other side of the coin is when you're making a mess of things like you did in Afghanistan, when you're failing to make public appearances and leave press conferences without taking questions and say, this is who I've been instructed to call on and say, I'm not allowed to do this. And when the, the White House press office gets upset because uh, when you have your meeting with for, foreign dignitaries and they take questions, but y'all had agreed to no questions, that doesn't put off a good look. That doesn't seem very in charge, very presidential. And when your overall approval rating has slipped to 50%, uh, which I think at this point in the presidency is only surpassed by Donald Trump and one other president uh, for the worst approval rating of all time, um, chances are you're going to endure some negative press coverage. And on this show, we'll be as fair as we can. Uh, I did not vote for Joe Biden. I did not vote for Donald Trump. I'm not a supporter of either I want good things for our country. I love our country. I hope Joe Biden succeeds while he's in the White House and does tremendous things because I'm an American citizen and I want what's best for us. So when his administration does good things, we will talk about it. When they mess up, we will talk about it. Left or right, we need both wings for this beautiful bald eagle to soar. And I'm a firm believer of that. Uh, but President Biden, you, you're going to have to relax a little bit. You're going to have to feel some questions. Because you got a big boy job, and if you're up to the task, you got to step up to the podium, and you got to take questions from reporters, and you got to respond to them, and you got to deal with it if they're hard or if they're tough. You don't get to be the leader of the free world and not experience some tough questions and not have to explain your reasoning or your policies. It's a part of the job. And I feel like I just gave a pep talk to my eighth grade son who's running for class president. <laughs> He does have a temper, though, don't he? Well, that was the missus. She was calling, um, asking about a car seat that we got to buy for my boy. Because uh, he's outgrown the other one because he's a big baby. One-year-old little man, grown man, big baby. Um, but, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that in the show while I edit it out. We don't do a lot of editing. You can hear police sirens and dog barkings. Uh, dog barkings, yeah. It's a part of the show. I hope it's a part of our charm that I'm just sitting out here in my backyard in the shed, no matter the weather, by the way. Our first uh, episode we recorded, I think it was like 30 degrees outside. I was bundled up. Um, this summer we recorded shows where it was like 100 degrees and we out here. Uh, no fan, no air conditioning, but we do it for you. We do it for you, my babies, my tools. It's all for you.
And uh, Joe Biden's got to have that attitude, too. It's all for the people. Take the questions. Take a deep breath. Calm down. The press is doing their job, and I'm a journalist, so I'm, I'm one of them. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a journalist, right? Right. Glad we agree. Our next story in the world of politics, Andrew Yang to launch a third party. The presidential candidate turned New York mayoral hopeful is no longer identifying as a Democrat. And A, it's 2021. Andrew Yang, you can identify however you like, buddy. Former presidential and New York mayoral candidate Andrew Yang is set to launch a third party next month, according to two people familiar with the matter. Two people familiar with the matter. Is one of them Andrew Yang? Because if not, then why are we reading this article? Like, who are the two people familiar with the matter? Is one of them Andrew Wang? (laughs) I can't possibly leave that in, can I? This is a family show. Andrew Yang? Is one of them Andrew Yang or his wife? Because if not, then why are we talking about it? Yang is expected to start the party in conjunction with the October 5th release of his new book, Forward Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. So that comes out in a few days. It's not clear what the name of Yang's third party will be or how he plans to deploy it in 2022 or 2024. Yang and his team did not respond to requests for comment. But the book's publisher, Crown, did give some clues about the type of platform that Yang may pursue. It writes that the book is an indictment of America's error of institutional failure and will introduce us to the various priests of the decline of America, including politicians whose incentives have become divorced from the people they supposedly serve. In the unfolding pandemic, economic crisis, and reckoning on race, governors and mayors are shaping our shared future. Who are the power players and how are they driving politics and influencing Washington? The book is blurbed by businessman Mark Cuban and the New York Times' Kara Swisher. A former business person, Yang surprised many in the political world with creative outsider campaigns for both president and mayor. His presidential campaign outlasted and raised more money than those of much more seasoned politicians. But ultimately, that did not translate to votes as he dropped out shortly after the New Hampshire primary and faded in the polls as the mayoral race came to a close. He ran predominantly on the idea of universal basic income, which would see the government give citizens a monthly $1,000 check. It was a quirky policy proposal that did not fit neatly into the ideological prism of either party and one Yang converts among many apolitical figures online and in the media, some of whom dubbed themselves the Yang Gang. So Andrew Yang, who got almost no votes for president and was not elected mayor, uh, is starting a third political party. Um, So people are quick to dismiss this, right, and say that this is all promotion for his book. Like, it just so happens that he's starting a third political party right when a book comes out. And I'm not so sure. Andrew Yang is someone that has become a political leader, a thought leader, and figure who does not fit really into either party. Um, He ran as a Democrat for president. Uh, He has echoed policies of Bernie Sanders in the past. Um, Yet, uh, along with Tulsi Gabbard, he was one of the candidates early on who had a lot of crossover interest and support from those who were conservative, um, from those who were independents, from those who were libertarians, and even some Republicans. Um, so I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss the fact that Andrew Yang actually wants to start this political party. Um, he, he was a successful businessman, someone that has made himself uh, into a millionaire, um, and 
he was unknown to most of America. And if you look, if you think about it that way, he actually had a, a fairly decent um, presidential campaign uh, because he went from being an unknown to being somebody that a lot of people around the country know who he is now. Uh, he kind of introduced the idea of universal basic income to America. And uh, it's an idea that I can kind of vibe with in a lot of ways uh, because it's not talking about just paying everybody um, their full salary or, or paying people not to work. The idea at its best um, is to take care of people's most basic needs. So if you get $1,000 a month from the government, most people cannot live on $1,000 a month. But most people across America can get groceries. Most people across America, that goes a long way towards paying their rent or their mortgage. And if your rent and your mortgage is paid, if you got groceries and food, um, that kind of gives you the freedom to pursue a job not based on income or insurance, but based on aptitude and passion and desire. It frees you up to, to be an inventor, an entrepreneur, to take risks that otherwise you just can't take because you got to pay your mortgage, because you got to pay rent, because you got to put food on the table. So um, I get people are like, hey, I don't want anybody to be paid for not doing work, like getting money for nothing. It will make them lazy. I hear that. I hear that. But so far, and all the trials that have been run in different cities, and even the ones that Andrew Yang himself conducted with his own money, people that receive that money haven't become lazier or just sat at home. It's freed them up to do things that otherwise they would not be able to do, which is pretty cool. I think Andrew Yang has a lot of interesting ideas. Um, he challenges the thoughts on issues of economics, on issues of artificial intelligence and technology. Um, he knows how to use social media. He ran a, a surprisingly successful presidential campaign, at least to introduce himself as a serious politician and candidate. Uh, I was pretty disappointed with his run for mayor because I thought coming off of the momentum of running for president that maybe he would win, that he would be the next mayor of New York City. It didn't happen. He started off good in the polls, and he just crashed and burned. Some negative press stories came out. He answered some questions in a funny way. Uh, he, he said Times Square was his favorite stop of, on the subway, and everybody in New York City was like, hey, you a tourist. <laughs> but look, I think, I think we need more than two parties. Our two-party system has run its course. We need a third party. Um, these two parties are too similar in a lot of ways, even though uh, the extremes of each party uh, are polar opposites. Uh, they they have a, a hold on power, and they use that power to enrich themselves, and they've forgotten about the people who elect them. And it's become a machine, and I think that we need some, some legitimate third parties, fourth parties to get in there and shake things up. It's been tried, the Libertarian Party, the Green Party, um, the People's Party. There are other parties trying, but I'm all for Andrew Yang starting one, too, and trying. Um, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm an independent. I'm more conservative than my liberal friends. I'm more liberal than many of my conservative friends. I'm for freedom. I'm for justice for all. I'm for liberty for individuals. I'm for government keeping us safe and taking care of the most vulnerable in society. And I think that another party, um, another party is needed. We need to remove the barriers that keep third parties at bay. And if Andrew Yang wants to be a part of that solution and use his intelligence and his money and his resources, then A, more power to you. Our next story, Victoria, Australia will lock out unvaccinated people from its economy. 
The Australian state of Victoria will lock out unvaccinated people from participating in the economy, Premier Dan Andrews has announced. Victoria is currently under draconian lockdown restrictions, which residents of Melbourne, who make up the vast majority of the state's population, living under a 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew, forbidden from leaving their houses except to work, buy groceries, or get a COVID-19 vaccination. When the lockdown is lifted, Premier Dan Andrews said on Sunday, future restrictions will apply only to those who are unvaccinated. There's going to be a vaccinated economy, and you get to participate in that if you are vaccinated, Andrews stated. We're going to move to a situation where, to protect the health system, we're going to lock out people who are not vaccinated and can be. If you're making the choice not to get vaccinated, then you're making the wrong choice, he added. Andrews did not say what kind of services and venues unvaccinated people would be locked out of, but he did say that once Victoria reopens, it's not going to be safe for people who are not vaccinated to be roaming around the place spreading the virus. Despite Andrews' plan to beat COVID-19 by segregating the vaccinated and unvaccinated, current research holds that vaccinated people can still catch the virus and spread it to others, and case counts are rising while hospitalizations and deaths are still prevalent in even the most widely vaccinated countries worldwide. No vaccines can reduce the risk of serious symptoms and death. Their efficacy at that falls with time, too. Andrew's proposed vaccinated economy triggered outrage online with critics describing the plan as psychopathic, Andrews as a dictator, and urging Aussies to not comply with the rules. Andrews also revealed that a vaccine passport scheme will be piloted in regional Victoria in the coming weeks, with proof of vaccination required to enter pubs and restaurants. Publicans are reportedly on board with the idea, with one telling ABC Australia that whilst we certainly don't like the idea of turning anyone away, we need to do whatever it takes to ensure the survival of our business. The Australian government agreed earlier this summer to study the rollout of the passport scheme in Victoria with a view to implementing it nationwide. Andrews is not the only Australian premier to subject his people to grueling lockdowns. In neighboring New South Wales, Premier Gladys Berejiklian, Ber- Gladys Berejiklian possibly, imposed a similarly rigorous lockdown last month, which is slated to run until at least the end of September and is currently being enforced by hundreds of police officers and soldiers on the streets of Sydney. Police have also been given powers to lock down entire apartment blocks and demand that residents show up for compliance checks. So, this is a this is a confusing time. This is a confusing time in our world, in our nation, um, with all this COVID stuff because we are we're all we're all weary. Um, we're all weary. We're all tired. Uh, it's, it's been a marathon and not one any of us knew about or were prepared for or signed up for. And uh, recently I was with a group of teenagers. And um, we were getting ready to, to, to pray. And I asked them um, what was on their mind, on their heart, what do we need to pray for, right? And all of them, all of them mentioned a family member or a friend or the family member of a friend that was on a ventilator that was in the hospital or that had died from COVID. And so there was a point about a year ago where I saw the numbers on the news. You know, CNN has the ticker, how many COVID deaths? I saw it rising and rising. 
But I didn't know anybody that had died of COVID or who had gotten severely sick or who had been hospitalized. I didn't, I didn't know anybody personally. And now, almost everybody knows somebody personally or has somebody in their family that is sick or that has died. So one thing that we will never do on this show is we will not minimize COVID-19 and the pandemic that we are a part of right now. It's not made up. It does exist. It is real. It is dangerous. Let's start from there. However, when you have a government like they do in parts of Australia that are literally talking about creating a whole separate economy that blocks folks who have chosen not to get a vaccine. To me, we've gotten into a situation in a place that's a little bit alarming. And in the U.S., we've got different regulations in different parts of the country. They've been more laxed in my area here in Alabama, although not as much as other places like Florida and Texas. Um, I have a brother-in-law that went to college in Pennsylvania, and things there were a lot stricter. I know some places in our country, you, you do have to have a vaccination card or, or proof of, of, of a negative test to get into certain facilities. But A, Australia's lockdown has been intense. And it hasn't been off and on like in the States. It's been consistent. It's been prolonged. And even in New South Wales, I was just reading this week too, that they've decided that children being away from other children and from their friends and being in isolation for this long might not be good for their mental health or their social development. Like, A, duh. I took one psychology class in college, but duh. And so their answer for this, their response, their solution is to allow children to form friendship bubbles. Friendship bubbles. Like five to eight, ten kids. They have to live within a five-kilometer boundary of each other. And they're allowed to go to each other's houses, all at the same house, to play. I'm stealing this line from Bill Maher on Real Time. But if your solution to a problem... Sounds like an onion headline, a headline from the onion. Maybe your solution is crazy. I'm not going to minimize COVID-19 or its effects. It's real. I've seen it. I've felt it. I myself have chosen and my family have chosen to get vaccinated. And I'm okay saying that. Even in Alabama, I'm okay saying that. Like We thought that that was the best choice for us. We want to do everything we can to protect ourselves, our children, my mom who is immunocompromised, my grandparents who I've been around multiple times, had a long conversation with my cousin who's uh, a nurse and who's really looked into this stuff that assured me everything has been checked out. This isn't something that has been rushed in the sense that we often hear on parts of the internet. So we decided to get vaccinated, okay? I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not going to make light of it. But I'm not I'm also not going to pretend like some places aren't going overboard and aren't being too heavy-handed. It might come from a good place, a, a place of wanting to protect people and to keep this virus from spreading. But, hey, first of all, it's not working, Australia. 
And secondly, um, whether or not somebody has the virus is not their only measure of health. And if people aren't mentally healthy because they've been in isolation, because they've been on extended lockdown, because they don't have the freedom to go outside and feel the sun on their face, something is wrong. I mean, in this article that we just read, uh, words like segregation, talk of locking out a whole segment of people from an economy, talk of how someone's personal choice was wrong so they don't deserve to be cared for. I get protecting people, but that I do not get. That I do not understand. This sentiment that has arisen during this tough and weird and awkward and, and horrific time of this pandemic where people say those who have chosen not to get vaccinated, if they get sick, they should not be taken care of at the hospital. They should be turned away. That I do not understand. Because I, I never have the mindset that someone who disagrees with me deserves to hurt, deserves to experience loss. And even if you find the decision to not get vaccinated irresponsible and reprehensible, and even if you don't agree with it, there's still people... They still have inerrant value just because they are human beings. When someone gets convicted of murder but has a heart attack in prison, they get rushed to the hospital in handcuffs, but they get taken care of. When someone makes decisions that are bad for their health or when someone tries to take their own life but does not succeed, they get taken to the hospital and taken care of. It's not, hey, we, we disagree with you. Hey, you made a mess of your own life. Hey, this is your fault, so you get no care. That's a slippery slope and a dangerous line of thinking, and it's immoral. And I think that governments like Australia that have come so heavy-handed, even if it's out of a good intent, which some think it might not be, I'm not going to go there. Even if it's out of a good intent, it may not be what's best for the people. And maybe, just maybe, allowing people to decide for themselves what they're comfortable with what risk level they're comfortable with, what they think is best for their health, for their family. Maybe that's what's best. It's a hard time. It's a lot of conflicting reports. It's a lot of harsh judgments that are circling around. But A, my tools, don't allow this hard time to cause you to become numb to the value of other people, even if you disagree with them. Don't let it cause you to hate folks who are on the other side, whether it's the other side of the political aisle, the other side of the, the vaccine, the other side of whatever. Because that's a virus too. Try to educate people. Pray for people. Encourage people to talk to their medical professional. But don't despise. Don't belittle. Don't hate. Don't divide ourselves further. Because truly nothing good comes of that. And that's my two cents. Our last story in the world of politics, South African Airways pilot resigns over fake license. A pilot has resigned from South African Airways after flying for more than 20 years with a fake license. South African Airways said it discovered William Chandler's paperwork was forged after a reportable incident during a flight from South Africa to Germany. The airline has filed criminal charges and is seeking millions of rand from Mr. Chandler. That must be their money, millions of rand. I don't think they mean like millions of rand Paul. 
I don't think any, I don't think anybody wants millions of Rand Paul. Even if you like him, that's too many. Uh, must be their money. A safety officer at SAA has also been suspended for allegedly trying to cover up the forgery. If I worked there as a safety officer, I would try to cover up the forgery as well. <laughs> like, hey, if this man has been flying without a pilot's license for 20 years and apparently has never crashed a plane, I would give him a raise in his pay so that he would be quiet and I would destroy any paperwork and claim to have lost the file and never talked about it ever, ever, ever again to anybody <laughs> Like, this story would not be coming to light until my death. Um, yeah. I would have tried to cover it up, too. South African newspaper The Mail and Guardian reported that Mr. Chandler worked as a flight engineer at the state-owned SAA before getting a job as a pilot in 1994. He was a senior first officer, a role where he was monitoring pilot but did not command any aircraft. Sources told the MNG that he was, however, in control of a plane that made some strange turns after encountering turbulence over the Swiss Alps. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this man almost ran into a mountain. He did not, so credit to him for that. Um, but he almost ran into a mountain. SAA said in a statement that after investigation, it found Mr. Chandler had only a commercial pilot's license. He later resigned. Airlines require pilots to have an airline transport pilot license for long-haul international flights. Okay, so the man did have a license. Like, this article is uh, is misleading. He didn't have a fake license. It was a real pilot's license, just not for the big planes. Homeboy was used to flying, like, the single person or the, the few passengers in a small plane. And now he's got the big boy almost flying into the mountain. Um, not fake, not fake, just not the correct license. For an ATPL, pilots must pass several technical and medical exams and complete 1,500 hours of flying time. Licensee holders must refresh their credentials every year in a series of tests involving flight simulations and physical exams. I got a flight simulator on my, on my iPhone. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's really dope, and it gives you different aircraft to learn how to fly, like to do the controls, the whole deal. Like It, it says it's like pretty realistic, right? I'm really bad. I'd just be flying in circles. I'd be like, oh, there go the sun. Oh, there go the sun again. <laughs> but my wife saw me doing it one night, and she was like, hey, let me try. And I was like, it's really hard. And she picked it up, and she flew the plane, and she landed the plane, and she set the phone down, and she looked at me all cocky. And I haven't touched the app since. <laughs> I haven't touched the app since, man. Uh, she was so much better at it than I was. Back to the story. What seems to have happened here is that the pilot would have taken what we have issued to them and would have changed those documents to give an impression that they are in possession of an ATPL, said Findawi Gwimbo, an SACAA spokesperson. Findawi Gwimbo. That is a dope name, Findawi. Findawi Gwimbo. Mr. Chandler had reportedly refused a promotion to captain that would have required him to resubmit his ATPL certificate. I wonder why. A spokesperson for SAA said that the alleged fraud was disconcerting, but had not posed any safety risks since Mr. Chandler was still in possession of a flying license and had complete safety training. Um, 
I'm sorry, it did not pose a safety risk. The man almost flew into the Swiss Alps. The man does not have the right license to fly a giant aircraft full of people. Like, if I, if I ever flew South African Airways, my name would be on the side of one of these aircrafts. Because I'd have the best lawyer I could find, baby. It would be um, in the Chevrolet West Anderson written right on the side of that 757. That would be happening. And I would be flying to see my favorite people in India. What's up, India? Here's my obligatory I want to be on a billboard in India comment for the show. Put me on a billboard in India. Yo, that's crazy. This man, how in the world do you go 20 years without them even noticing that you don't have the right type of license? Like, like that man might not even done that on purpose. He might have just got a promotion and been like, I didn't think I was qualified, but okay, I'll roll with it. And then uh, by the time he realized what had happened, he's like, hey, it's been like seven years and I've been in this position. Um, I'm just not going to say nothing and see what happens. <laughs> and what happened was, was he was allowed to fly airplanes for 20 years full of passengers and he didn't have the right type of license. But I feel like if nobody got hurt, like maybe he should be commended rather than arrested. Right. Like maybe like, like let, let's give the guy credit where credit is due. He flew an airplane. Like, I don't have the right license either. I could not fly that airplane, and my app has shown that. My wife might could. I could not. People would die. I would have hit the mountain, but somehow this man avoided it. And I, I would get in the airplane with him because he seems like a good pilot to me. He deserved a raise. He deserved a raise. Not to be fired or arrested. That's all for the world of politics. Let's switch to this, the world of sports, and let's hit the headlines. Frustrated Meyer calls Jags' loss heartbreaking. LeBron Law's energy shift at Lakers' camp. Breakup with Belichick handled perfectly, according to Tom Brady. Vax rate for NBA players rises to 95%. Eminem, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Mary J. Blige, and Kendrick Lamar to perform at Super Bowl halftime show. The NCAA considers having both Final Fours in the same city. And Georgia quarterback JT Daniels is expected to start this weekend against Arkansas. Well, the Atlanta Braves have clinched the NL East for the fourth year in a row. But hey, we don't talk baseball on this show. Let's get to some real sports. And let's talk NBA. NBA training camps have opened. And uh, just real quickly, I want to talk about a couple of teams with championship aspirations this year that are experiencing some difficulties. The first is the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets, they've started training camp. They're going to San Diego, California for that. James Harden is there. Kevin Durant is present. And Kyrie Irving is noticeably absent. Absent related to vaccine issues. Uh, I'm not so interested in the fact that that is the reason why he is missing, and a lot of folks have spent time talking about whether or not he should be vaccinated and how he should handle that and what the league's policy is. My interest is more on who Kyrie Irving has shown himself to be as a teammate. Because ultimately, Kevin Durant, in choosing to leave the Golden State Warriors and come to the Brooklyn Nets and sign with them, ultimately, he left Stephen Curry for Kyrie Irving. 
And I know there's other things going on there. There were other factors. Um, the front office in each, the coaching situation, his relationship with Draymond Green, um, where he wanted to live and business interests as far as San Francisco versus Brooklyn. There's a lot of things going on. But if you boil it down to his best teammate on each team, Kevin Durant made a decision to leave Stephen Curry, two-time MVP, greatest three-point shooter of all time, tremendous teammate, tremendous leader for Kyrie Irving. And from a skill set point of view, Kyrie Irving is an exceptionally talented basketball player. I mean, Kyrie Irving can shoot the ball, his ball handling, he's one of the two best ball handlers in the league. Like, he's an exceptional talent. There's not very many players, only a handful of players that can score the ball like Kyrie Irving in the game today. But as a teammate, He's kind of wishy-washy. And, and I don't mean in interpersonal relationships between he and his teammates. He and LeBron didn't always see eye to eye. I'm not talking about that. Your biggest ability in anything in life, in business and sports, in familial relationships, your biggest ability is your availability. And whether it be from injury or leaves of absence or uh, struggles with mental health, or whatever it is, over the years now, a vaccine issue, Kyrie Irving has consistently shown himself not to be available enough. Not for his teams, other than when he had LeBron to compete for a title, not to come through when it matters most. In Cleveland, he hit the biggest shot in team history, but as a member of the Brooklyn Nets and as a member of this big three that has been constructed, He's more times than not been absent. So the Brooklyn Nets hope to be championship contenders. They're seen by a lot of people as favorites to win the championship this year. But in order to get that done, they need Kyrie Irving present, not half the time. Not 75% of the time, but they need him there. And not just in body. They need the man focused. They need him uh, to have laser-like precision in his focus. And that's an ability that I just don't know that he has. I don't know that basketball really matters that much to Kyrie Irving. I don't know that winning a championship really matters that much to Kyrie Irving. And he has a lot of ability. But availability seems to be something that he struggles with. Another team that's really up against it coming into the season, the Philadelphia 76ers. They had the best record in the Eastern Conference last year, but got ousted by the Atlanta Hawks. Joel Embiid is constantly battling injury, but is a dominant force when he's healthy. But they're without Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons, who um, was a no-show for much of the Eastern Conference semis against the Atlanta Hawks, who had a wide-open dunk but passed it up, who refuses to take jump shots in NBA games. And, of course, if you remember, after that series ended uh, in the press conference, Doc Rivers was asked directly, can Ben Simmons be a point guard on a championship 76ers team? And despite what he's tried to, to say now, what he actually said then was, I don't know. I don't know. And that was the beginning of the end of Ben Simmons in Philly. Ben Simmons, who is a great passer, who is good on defense, who can handle the ball, who rebounds, but who has not developed any type of jump shot, at least not that he's willing to take 
not to make, but to take in an NBA basketball game. And he's skipped out on training camp. He's made it clear through his agents that he's not going to play another game in Philly, despite the fact that he's got four more years on his contract. And Philly has been actively trying to trade him, but they want a high price and a King's ransom for him, which they're not getting on this market right now. They don't have to trade him. They can hold him. They can sit him at home, and they can find him. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yesterday, Joel Embiid was asked about it. He's remained uh, silent, but now that things are officially done, he came out with some blistering commentary about the Ben Simmons partnership. According to Joel Embiid, it was always about Ben Simmons, that the way the roster was constructed, who they brought in, who they signed, who who they let go of, it was always to put the ball in Ben Simmons' hands, and it never resulted in winning. He even pointed out the fact that when they let Jimmy Butler go, a lot of that was to choose Ben Simmons instead of Jimmy Butler, and uh, that those two didn't mesh and that they made the wrong decision, which, hey, I'm not the biggest Joel Embiid fan but I think he's spot on. Imagine if they had got rid of Ben Simmons then and traded him for a couple of draft picks and a piece, and they kept Jimmy Butler, and they had Jimmy Butler who is toughness, who is defense, who is making those around him better and holding them to a higher standard. What if they had him alongside Joel Embiid plus Tobias Harris and added pieces? I think Joel Embiid is right. So the Nets and the 76ers Both see themselves as championship contenders, but unless some things change, I don't know that either one is quite there. And that's the NBA. Let's switch to this and talk some NFL football. Catch us up on what happened last weekend. The Chiefs fell to the Chargers 30-24. They've now lost two games in a row. Meanwhile, the Broncos, Panthers, and Raiders all surprisingly remain undefeated. Aaron Rodgers looks like Aaron Rodgers again. He was impressive in a 30-28 road win at San Francisco. And the Rams look like the best team in the NFL with a 10-point win over Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. A few stories I want to highlight in the NFL. The first is that there's a lot of teams who are surprising, but there's three teams who look just plain awful. Just plain awful. And uh, A... Detroit and Jacksonville are not one of those three teams because the Lions and the Jaguars have been consistently competitive. They've lost all their games, but they've been right there at the end. The three teams I'm talking about are the two teams from New York, the Giants and the Jets, and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, you might say, hey, the Steelers are not winless. How can they be on this list? Um, Watch them play football and get back to me. The Giants are winless under second-year head coach Joe Judge. Um, and Daniel Jones, he's shown flashes in his time in New York, but he's just he, he still remains to be a consistently good quarterback. And uh, there's got to be question, if you're a Giants fan, about whether or not Daniel Jones is even good. And if he's played this much football, I know the line is terrible. I know they've had a lot of injuries and inconsistency from um, the wide receiver position. But if he's played this much football... And the question is still on the table of whether or not he's even good. It might be time to make a backup plan. It might be time to think about moving on. A lot of people were high on Daniel Jones. I was never one of those people. And if we're being honest, this might sound like blasphemy. I haven't heard very many people say this. But if we're being honest, 
Is it time to admit that Saquon Barkley isn't a very good NFL running back? I'm just saying. He averages like, what, 45 yards a game? He spends too much time dancing around. He doesn't hit the hole with power. Yes, he's good at catching the ball out of the backfield. But anytime I watch the Giants play, it seems like Saquon Barkley gets tackled behind the line more than any NFL running back that I've watched. And then he'll just happen to bust like a 50-yard run or a 60-yard run and wind up in the positive. But he doesn't do very much consistently throughout the game. He's not one of these running backs that strings together three-yard run after three-yard run, four-yard run, bust one for 10, 12, then hit a 50. Their run game has not been even close to good. And granted, like I said, they've had a horrible offensive line the whole time that they've had Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. I get it. I get it. But I've seen other running backs whose talent shows up even when the offensive line doesn't and who manufacture rushing yards. And I'm not seeing that from Saquon Barkley. And the Giants are not looking to be improved. They look terrible. Also in New York, if it's possible to look worse than the New York football Giants, that's what the Jets are aiming for. Because they are a terrible football team. Zach Wilson looks absolutely lost. Granted, he's a rookie without weapons in a tough situation. We told you on draft night that he would have a hard time succeeding this year. We've seen rookies in the past like Peyton Manning who have thrown a ton of interceptions only to have Hall of Fame careers. But the Jets are, are like historically bad. Their offense is historically bad. They scored zero points this week. They couldn't even get a field goal on the board. And they're in trouble. They're in trouble. They're a bad football team. And the third team on our list of awful, 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 terrible, terrible football teams, <laughs> these fan bases going to hate me, is the Steelers. The Steelers. Because Big Ben is done. If we're being honest, we knew that Big Ben was done two years ago. Or at least he was heading toward being done. At the end of last season when they started off so good and crashed and burned and he couldn't complete a pass above eight yards, like we knew something was going on. But this year, Big Ben looks like he's had too many cheeseburgers. He looks old. He looks slow. He looks fat. He looks out of shape. He looks uncomfortable in the pocket. He looks like his feet don't move. It's time to start thinking about benching Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, the man has had a great career. He won you Super Bowls. But if your objective is to win games, and they have a good culture there, and Mike Tomlin is one of the better coaches in the NFL, and they have opportunity, and they have weapons, and they have promising young players, if, if your objective is to win football games this season, could Dwayne Haskins really be any worse? I know he wasn't good in Washington, but can he be any worse than Ben Roethlisberger is now? I think it's time for a change. The Steelers should have convinced Big Ben to retire in the offseason, not take a pay cut. And those are the three teams I've watched this season that I just said those are really bad football teams. The Lions are competitive with Dan Campbell. The Jaguars are trying really hard for Urban Meyer. But the Giants, the Jets, and the Steelers, they're just bad. Another team I want to highlight is the 1-2 Miami Dolphins. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Coach Brian Flores. I think that he does things the right way, that he's built a good program there in Miami. 
But the situation with Tua doesn't look good. Tua has a history of being injury prone. He's the only quarterback in the NFL, the only starting quarterback that was not named a captain. He wasn't good last year in his starts. He may not play again this Sunday. And this week news came out that the Dolphins owner still has an interest, even after all the things that have happened, in trading for Deshaun Watson. Um, For a starting quarterback not to be named a team captain is a rarity. That doesn't happen very often, and it's almost like sending a message. And then for the owner to kind of say behind the scenes that I would rather have Deshaun Watson, even though this was your top pick and he's only in year two, the fact that he's been injured, that he might not play this week, that they've gotten off to a one and two start, things don't look good for Tua in Miami. And they have a chance to rebound this week playing a Colts team that's also not very good. But it's getting to the point where you're starting to wonder if things are going to work out for Tua Tungavailoa in Miami. Or whether they're going to be moving on next year. Then you have the Carolina Panthers. The Panthers who are undefeated, who take on the Cowboys this week. Um, Talk about a coach that is seeming to work Matt Rule coming over from Baylor and from the college game. Uh, so far, that's seeming to translate really well. Sam Darnold is a, uh, has a chance to be comeback player of the year. He was terrible with the uh, Jets franchise. It's one of the worst in all of sports here in Carolina and in Charlotte so far after three games. He's done a really good job of managing that offense. Uh, he looks healthy. He looks athletic. He looks sharp. They have the best pass rush so far in the NFL, but... Christian McCaffrey is hurt, and he's going to miss some time yet again. This is why they drafted uh, Chuba Hubbard out of Oklahoma State. This is why they worked hard to improve the offensive line and to have other weapons outside of Christian McCaffrey. Because make no mistake about it, Christian McCaffrey is what people told us Saquon Barkley would be, okay? Christian McCaffrey is great out of the backfield. He runs the best routes of of any running back other than Marshall Falk that I've ever seen. Christian McCaffrey has breakaway speed, but, hey, he can also run between the tackles. And coming out of Stanford, we were told that he's too small, he's too little, he can't run between the tackles, that he can just catch the screens and he can run to the outside. Christian McCaffrey is compact. Like, he's, he's small, but he's not little. He runs the ball hard. He's one of the better backs in all of the NFL, and he makes that Panthers offense. But he's hurt again. And it's to the point now where I'm starting to wonder if Christian McCaffrey is not the NFL's version of Grant Hill. Somebody who was tremendous in college football, who was a top draft pick, who had tons of talent, who made an immediate impact, a generational talent, but whose career was certainly hampered, and not ruined, not ruined, but impeded by consistent injury, by nagging injury, injury that kept him from being healthy consistently throughout his career. And I hope that I'm wrong. I love watching Christian McCaffrey play, but the injuries are starting to add up, and he's still young. He's still early on in his career. Things can still turn around. They did for Steph Curry, right? Like just when Steph Curry was starting to hit his stride, he had those ankle injuries time after time. He missed a lot of time. And then he got things figured out, and he bounced back. 
and he's one of the better players in NBA history. So for Carolina, they've gotten off to a surprising 3-0 start. Sam Darnold looks good. Their defense looks incredible. They go up against the Cowboys this week, which will be a great game. But the thing that I'm looking for and that I'm watching and that I'm curious about is which is it for Christian McCaffrey? Is he Grant Hill or is he Steph Curry? Because if he's Grant Hill, he can still have a good career. But if he can stay healthy and get things figured out and worked out, he might be Steph Curry. Three games this weekend in the NFL that interest me the most are the Lions at the Bears. I, I'm the only one outside of Detroit or Chicago interested, but the reason why is because um, on this show, In the Shed with West, we are Dan Campbell fans, okay? Like we've played Dan Campbell quotes. That man is crazy. And I like to watch his team. They play hard. They are better. They are improved. It has not yet translated to wins. It might this week. But also, uh, on this show, we really were fans of the Bears drafting Justin Fields. I thought Justin Fields was the best quarterback in the draft. And last week he threw for like 50 or 60 yards and looked horrible. Is it coaching mismanagement? Was it a bad game plan? Is Justin Fields in over his head? Is he even going to start this week? We don't know. But all those questions, along with Dan the Man Campbell, are why I'm going to be tuning in to Lions at Bears. Another game I can't wait to watch is the Cardinals at the Rams. The Rams look like the best team in the NFL after three weeks. Their acquisitions of Jalen Ramsey... And of Matthew Stafford look inspired. Matthew Stafford got off to a slow start against the Buccaneers, and then he was slinging it all over the field, showing off his arm. That partnership between him and his head coach seemed to be a match made in heaven. Their defense looks good, and they're playing a very interesting Cardinals team because the Cardinals have a good defense. They have a good pass rush. They have a good secondary. And Kyler Murray is a way better, far better NFL quarterback than I ever saw coming. I thought he was too small. I thought that he was Baker Mayfield 2.0, that his system in Oklahoma had made him out to be better than he was, and I was flat wrong. So far, he's the leader in the clubhouse for MVP in my book. He's been electric. Throwing the ball, running the ball, keeping his team in games, finding ways to win. He's been explosive. And for everybody that uh, mocked the Cardinals when they drafted Kyler Murray and when they hired Cliff Kingsbury, A, it might be time to say that that partnership is going okay and that things are looking on the up and up there in Arizona. So can Arizona take it to the next level? Can they beat a team like the Rams or will the Rams continue their dominance? I'll be tuned in for that. And the final game that I want to highlight this week the undefeated Raiders at the Los Angeles Chargers. Their new stadium is um, impressive. And Justin Herbert looks like one of the better young quarterbacks in the league. I already think he's top 10. But he's challenging to move up in the rankings. He outplayed Patrick Mahomes last week, and he's done that two of the three times that he's faced Patrick Mahomes, oddly enough. The Chargers uh, blew a game against the Cowboys, but they've shown themselves to be a good team, a formidable team so far this season. And the Raiders, win, baby, win. 
the Las Vegas Raiders, which is so fitting to me. I love Oakland. I wish they were still there. But if they're not going to be in Oakland, the only other place the Raiders could be is Vegas. They got Chucky Doll for a head coach. They got David Carr's brother at quarterback. <laughs> Derek Carr looks like the best quarterback in the league through three weeks. And the Raiders are 3-0. and And the reason why I highlight this game is because the Raiders have actually started 3-0 and the last two seasons. I don't know if you're aware of that. They have. They've been 3-0 and the last two seasons and then crashed and burned. They play in the tough division. And they're going to go on the road to a very good football team that has a quarterback who is as good as theirs. And I want to see what they're made of. I want to see if their running game continues to improve with Peyton Barber as they await their starter to return from injury. I want to see if their defense is for real. I want to see if Derek Carr continues to play at an MVP pace. I think he's second behind Kyler Murray in that regard right now. I want to watch the Raiders and the Chargers. And we can't end our sports segment without talking some college football. A lot happened last weekend, a lot going on this weekend. But we start with the In the Shed Solid 7. If you haven't been keeping up with us on Twitter, uh, we've only mentioned it once on the show so far, but every week during the college football season, we are picking seven games going against the spread, um, giving you seven matchups that we really like. We're keeping up with our progress, shooting for 53%, because 53% puts you in the money. And uh, after four weeks, we are at 50%. We're almost where we need to be, my babies. Um, last week, we had a great weekend going 6-1, and one. The only team that let us down was the USC Trojans because we picked them to cover the spread against Oregon State and they lost 45 to like 28 or something. It was crazy. Um, Check us out on Twitter at InTheShed4. Those are the words InTheShed4 and you can find our solid seven picks. We'll also give them out here at the end of our segment for this week. Uh, but we went 6-1 and one last week, and we were pretty satisfied with that. We were on fire. Let's give you a quick review of some important things that happened this last weekend in college football. Syracuse knocked off Liberty and Hugh Freeze 24-21. to uh, Liberty had chances in that game, but their undefeated season comes to an end. They have a loss now. Notre Dame put it on Wisconsin, who falls to 1-2 and two by a score of 41-13. to SMU defeated TCU 42-34 and then planted their flag at midfield at TCU Stadium. And their coach, Gary Patterson, was not happy about that. He was like, hey, they planned that. And I'm like, hey, you lost the game. You don't get to talk. (laughs) Coastal Carolina remains undefeated, winning 53-3 over UMass. The Baylor Bears beat Iowa State 31-29 to remain undefeated. And uh, there are three things that I want to highlight from this last weekend before we get to the games this weekend. The first is Clemson losing 27-21 to to NC State. Clemson Tigers are officially out of the playoff running. Uh, that's their second loss of the season, and things do not look good for Dabo Swinney and his Clemson Tigers. Uh, on the one hand, they could win out, go 10-2, win the ACC, have a very good season overall, But they've been a team that is a staple in the college football playoffs. Um, They have had a couple of really dominant playoff performances. They have won championships. They're just expected to be there. 
And in our inaugural In the Shed with Wes preseason top 25 rankings, for all of those reasons, along with who they had returning, we had them ranked our number one team in the country. And man, were we wrong. We were wrong. We, we were fooled. Uh, bamboozled. DJ Uangale just has not been able to play to the level that most people, including myself, thought that he would. Um, He got some valuable playing time last year. He got to start when Trevor Lawrence was out for a game or two. One of those starts coming in South Bend against Notre Dame, a game that they almost won. And he looked really good in those games. He looked young, but he looked really good. And I get that they've replaced some pieces on the offensive line, just like Alabama. They kind of lose a lot of players to the NFL and have to replace them each year. But I thought that Clemson would be better than this. I expected more out of Clemson this season. Their defense has shown up to be good early on, but they've kind of faded as well now, too. Their receivers don't seem to be able to get open, and their quarterback play and offensive line play have have generally been abysmal. So Dabo Sweeney has some stuff to figure out there. And for the first time in several years, Clemson fans cannot be happy that their team, only four games into the season, is now out of the running for the college football playoffs. I mean, I cannot imagine a scenario where a two-loss Clemson team from the ACC gets invited to come to the college football playoffs. It's just not happening. The real question is, will Dabo Sweeney make coaching changes after this season? Because Clemson, unlike Alabama, unlike all these other big programs, they've kept the same coaching staff together. And that has largely been credited with one of the reasons that they've been so successful. But it might be time to shake things up on that staff and go in a new direction. Will they be able to do that? Will they be able to rebound? Will their recruiting take a hit? Or is this the end of Clemson's reign as one of the two best teams in college football? I think by the end of the season, we'll have some of those questions answered. Another disappointing loss this weekend I've already alluded to. That was USC losing to Oregon State by a score of 45-27. to Of course, they've already moved on from their coach firing Clay Helton in the middle of the season, which is the second time in recent years that they've done that. Um, I told you that was a bad look. Like, how are you supposed to recruit a very good head coach to come to your school if the last two you've let go in the middle of the season? Um, And then when Ed Ogeron was interim and was winning all those games, you ain't want to keep him. And probably the guy you have now who's interim, no matter how many games he wins, you ain't going to want to keep him. So USC... uh, They won their first first game under the interim coach, but then they lost this one to Oregon State, who has a pretty good squad this year. But they lost 45-27. to It wasn't close. And uh, they struggle in all facets of the game. Their defense is not elite. Their offense is not elite. Their quarterback play is not elite. And it's really hard to see a USC team that, when I was growing up, was one of the two or three best teams in all of college football. It's hard to see them still getting the same five-star recruits. Like every week when they play a Pac-10, Pac-12 team, whatever, how many teams are in the Pac, whatever now. Every every week when they line up against a team in their conference, they have the most talent on the field. With the possible, possible exception of Oregon. And yet they can't beat anybody. They don't outman anybody. They don't look exceptional in any facet of the game. And this week there's been a lot of chatter as far as their head coach opening and who they're going to hire, who they should go after. The name that you hear the most is Urban Meyer. It's not happening. Urban Meyer could go 0-17 in Jacksonville. And he's not leaving 
Trevor Lawrence, the NFL, and the Jaguars after one season to come to the dumpster fire that is USC. It's not happening. USC is a traditional great program, a lot of potential. I do think that it's a type of situation with the conference they play in and the talent that they recruit that if you plug in the right head coach, they could go 10-2 and two next season. But that man won't be Urban Meyer. He's got too much on the line for his reputation. He's too arrogant to fail in Jacksonville in one season. He might fail. He might fail overall. But if he does, it'll be in two or three seasons. He's going to go back for more next year. The other name that you heard this week, you heard former USC great Reggie Bush, Heisman Trophy winner, if he's still allowed to be called that. Um, He said that the head coaching job should go to Deion Sanders. He pointed out the fact that Deion Sanders had the 55th ranked recruiting class in the country at an HBCU Jackson State. And A, that's an interesting argument. (laughs) Because that is an amazing feat that Deion Sanders could could accomplish that. There's no doubt that Deion Sanders um, has the personality to be the head coach of USC. Uh, There's no doubt that he has the experience as far as a football player to be the head coach at USC. There's no doubt that he could recruit phenomenally well at USC. But if we're being honest, what we don't know yet is if he has the organizational ability Or if he's good enough as a head coach, would it be an interesting flyer to take? Sure. Would I like it? Yes, it would be a lot of fun. I would tune into games. But I'm not sure that USC is in a position to take a flyer. They want an established, experienced head coach that has shown success at the Division I level. And I want to give you two names. I want to give you two names that haven't really been mentioned. I haven't heard them mentioned one single time, not on FS1, not on ESPN, not on Fox Sports Radio. Nowhere have I heard this mentioned. But to me, these are two guys that have to be considered. The first is Chris Peterson. Former Washington Husky, former Boise State head coach Chris Peterson. He knows the conference. He knows the West Coast. He's a disciplined head coach. He's shown the ability to sustain success over many years. He's shown the ability to compete with the best in that same conference with less talent at Washington. He's shown the ability to build a roster, to develop a staff, to have a defense that consistently is hard-nosed and competes year in and year out, to bring in quarterbacks who are elite-level quarterbacks in college football. He's retired, but he's not old. And he might, if you have a conversation, you offer him the opportunity to be the man, to set the course, to bring in his culture and his guys, to do things the right way. He might be interested in that job. The other coach that should be considered, if USC wants to win, is Liberty head coach Hugh Freeze. Now, on the one hand, it might be a tough sell because USC has had kind of a shadow that has hung over the program when it comes to issues of fairness and morality, shall we say, in recent years. And Hugh Freeze has those same issues. But if you're just talking about winning football, there ain't a lot of head coaches better at it than Hugh Freeze. The fact that the man beat Alabama twice at Ole Miss 
the fact that he got the number one overall recruit in the nation at Ole Miss. The fact that he had offenses that averaged as many points as he did while at Ole Miss. And that he took them even briefly to a number one overall ranking is nothing short of phenomenal. Did he bend some rules to make it happen? A, that's a distinct possibility. Did he have moral failures that resulted, uh, character flaws that raised their head that resulted in him losing that job? Yes. And then he resurfaced at Liberty, a program that is new to FBS. They had never done much of anything. And he got him a quarterback transfer out of Auburn named Malik Willis. It never got to play at Auburn. And what has he done? He led him to a top 25 season last year within a field goal of going undefeated. And this year, yes, they, they just lost to Syracuse. They could have and probably should have won that game. But they're a dynamic team. He scores points wherever he is. And I believe if USC wanted to pull a coach from somewhere else that they know for sure will bring them back to winning football. It might just be Hugh Freeze. If they can stomach it, it might just be Hugh Freeze. So those are a couple of coaching candidates that USC should be thinking about, and I'm not hearing anybody else say so. What do you think of those two options? Who do you think USC should hire? Who should they consider? Email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com and let us know. That's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. The third story from college football this week I want to talk about is not a loss, but darn near should have been and could have been. And that's the Auburn Tigers, my Auburn Tigers, 34-24 win over the mighty Georgia State. Not the Georgia Bulldogs. Not J.T. Daniels and company, but Georgia State. It was Auburn's homecoming week. And they were losing in the fourth quarter to a team that they should have beat by 45 points. And that's no disrespect to Georgia State. They played a great game. They executed. They played winning football. They deserved to win. But first-year head coach Brian Harson is in a tough position. He took this job leaving his alma mater at Boise State. It was an interesting hire, one that was unexpected in this part of the country. And generally, um, I was kind of looking forward to seeing what Brian Harson would do at Auburn. So far, he has not shown an ability to recruit. Auburn is 11th or 12th in the nation with their recruiting class coming into the next year, which is not normal. Auburn usually hovers around 5th or 6th in the conference. They've now got a quarterback controversy as starter Bo Nix, who is a junior, was pulled from the homecoming game in favor of T.J. Finley, the transfer from LSU. And honestly, he didn't look that much better than Bo Nix had. The only difference was with the game on the line, T.J. Nix led a 98-yard touchdown drive and threw the go-ahead touchdown. And so now the question is, this week at LSU, who do you start? The quarterback with more experience that knows the offense a little bit better, but who has been underperforming? his entire career at Auburn, or T.J. Finley, who is bigger, who may have a bigger arm and pose more of a deep threat, who came from LSU. Brian Harson fired his wide receiver coach after just four games, a coach that left his alma mater to come coach at Auburn, which is a bizarre turn of events. He elevated a guy that had been on his staff in Boise 
And the question just remains is what is going to happen the rest of the season for Auburn, a team that somehow is still ranked in the top 25, and I don't get it. They played a good game against Penn State, but that's all they've done this year is they played a good game and a game that they lost on the road. They should have lost to Georgia State. They blew out two nobody teams, and they're about to enter the gauntlet because they play at LSU, and then they host Georgia, and then they go at Arkansas, they host Ole Miss, and then they travel to Texas A&M. So the next five games are going to tell us who this Auburn Tigers football team is. A team that should have an elite defense. Based on their returners in the secondary, their talent at linebacker, they should have an elite defense, but they haven't been able to get a consistent pass rush. A team who has one of the best running back rooms in all of college football with Tank Bigsby and Jarquez Hunter and Sean Shivers, but who can't find a way to consistently run the football. Are things going to blow up? Are the wheels going to come off this week in a night game at LSU, a place that they haven't won in over 20 years? Or will they figure out a way to bounce back and to put the pass behind them and to improve and to play consistently? This could be a wake-up call for Bo Nix. If there's any time for him to experience a wake-up call and to have success on the Plains, it's now or never. Because either he's not going to start this football game or he's going to start but be on an incredibly short leash. This happened years ago with Alabama when they had Jake Coker at quarterback. He had been pulled. They started uh, Blake Barnett the next game. And then Jake Coker came in in the second quarter, and from then on he made it clear that he was the better player. He was the starting quarterback. The other guy transferred out. Can Bo Nix have one of those moments where he says, this is my team, I'm in charge, I'm the leader, I'm QB1? It's now or never. And even though he's only four games in, the honeymoon for Brian Harson is over after last week. Will the wheels come off, or will he right the ship? So those are the three stories that I wanted to highlight from last week. There's three games that I'm looking forward to the most this week, and that's uh, three games that are probably obvious to you without me even saying them. The first is Arkansas at Georgia. Arkansas has been a tremendous surprise out of the SEC this year. Um, I did not see it coming. I thought that they would be improved, but that it might not translate to wins. So far, it certainly has. They're traveling to Georgia to play the number two team in the country. Um, Whose defense will show up, whose quarterback will show up, what will happen there. Uh, The second game is Cincinnati at Notre Dame. This is Cincinnati's opportunity. Um, Cincinnati actually, you know, people like to knock them and say they don't play anybody. Um, they already played on the road to Indiana, and they won. Now they're going on the road to Notre Dame. And then they also have UCF, Houston, Memphis, and SMU in conference, and those are all good football teams. Like Those are all teams that are either top 25 level or close. So Cincinnati doesn't get enough love. I love what they have built over there in Ohio. And if they win this game, this is an opportunity to get themselves into the playoff discussion. Now, I don't like what the AP has done to them where uh, they started them off at like 6th or 7th in the country and they've won all their games and then they get leapfrogged by all these teams that weren't even ranked and they're just doing it to keep them out of the discussion for college football playoffs because they're not in one of the sacrosanct conferences that we label good because they're bigger programs with more history and coaches that we know. They've got a darn good 
football coach, a darn good quarterback, a, a darn good team, and I'll be rooting for him against Notre Dame. I hope they upset the apple cart. I hope they win the game. I hope they go undefeated. In the third game I'm looking forward to this weekend, Lane Kiffin and the Ole Miss Rebels who travel to Tuscaloosa. Yeah, Lane Kiffin versus Nick Saban. I watched that 10 times out of 9. Yes, I know what I said. Uh, Matt Corral is one of the favorites for the Heisman Trophy. If you don't know who that is, that's Ole Miss's quarterback, and you should know who he is because he's electric. They have one of the best offenses in the country. The real question here is, has Ole Miss's defense improved since last year? It looks like it's made modest improvements so far, but they also have not really played anybody. And they're about to play the number one team in the country. Alabama looked beatable against Florida. Will that repeat itself? Can Ole Miss actually be in a position in the fourth quarter to win this football game? Alabama's like 14 and a half point favorites, even though they're both ranked Alabama number one overall and Ole Miss number 11. Nick Saban's team had a hard time with Lane Kiffin's squad last year. And I can't wait to see what happens this year. Either it's going to be a close game and Ole Miss might pull it out, or Alabama's going to come out and dominate. But I'll be watching either way. I want to give an update before we leave sports on our In the Shed with West Top 25 College Football Rankings. As you know, we did a preseason Top 25 Rankings, and then we were going to do something different. We were going to wait until after week four, when all the teams had played three or four games, to update our rankings. Because our top 25 college football rankings aren't like the AP. They're not based on who your head coach is or how many times you're on television or what you did last year. They're based on the product that you put on the field, the talent that you have on your roster, how your staff is actually working to make your team better week in and week out, and the improvement that you show, who you play. Ours is evidence-based. It's not based on your conference. It's not based on your history. It's based on today, Shouty. So we have updated our top 25 rankings. We'll put these out on Twitter as well. You can follow us there at in the shed 4 That's the words in the shed and the number 4. Find us there on Twitter. Without further ado, here are our top 25 college football teams. Number 25, the Maryland Terrapins. They're 4-0 overall this year. Mike Loxley is doing a great job up there in Maryland. They have Tua's little brother at quarterback, and he's lighted up. They're ranked 25. Number 24, the undefeated UTSA Roadrunners. This is a football team that you won't get to see play on TV but they've got a good squad. They've won all their games. They came back to beat Memphis last week, who is a good football team. They're 24th. Number 23 overall, the Oklahoma State Cowboys, who are also undefeated. Number 22, Oregon State. The Beavers uh, put it on USC last week. They are 3-1, and one, and they're ranked 22nd in our poll. Number 21, the Army Black Knights. Army is undefeated. They play good, sound, fundamental football. They play good defense. Um, they run that offense that's nothing special to look at, but just pounds you and pounds you and pounds you. And uh, they're going to have some chances this year to play some other teams. It's going to be interesting to see what they do, uh, but they're undefeated so far. They've put, a good, put together a good season after having a great season last year. They're number 21 overall. Number 20, Michigan State. 
Number 19, Michigan. These teams are further back in our poll than they are in the others, uh, but I think that's where they're at until they play some better competition. Number 18, Wake Forest. Number 17, Fresno State. They've had some big wins there for Fresno. Number 16, BYU. They lost Zach Wilson, who went to the Jets, but they have picked up where they left off last season. They've won all of their games so far this year. And the Cougars are a team that, um, for an independent, for a team that's not in a major conference yet, even though they're set to join the Big 12, um, they are as good on the lines as a lot of these big conference teams. Their offensive line and their defensive line. They have size, they have athleticism, and uh, we have them ranked 16th overall. Our 15th ranked team, the Kentucky Wildcats. Kentucky is 4-0. They've got a big matchup this week with the Florida Gators uh, at home. Uh, they have transfer quarterback Will Levis, who gives them a passing attack to go with a good defense and a solid running game. Mark Stoops has built, built a consistent winning program there in Kentucky. Uh, for some reason, they're not getting any glove yet. Um, but I think that they're a good football team. We'll see how good this week is. They play a really good Florida team. They're ranked 15th overall. Number 14, Ohio State Buckeyes. A disappointing start to Ohio State's season, but they've got time to rebound. Number 13, Texas A&M. Number 12, Ole Miss. Number 11, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. And now let's get to our top 10 teams. We'll post these rankings on Twitter. Number 10, Iowa. Number nine, Penn State. Number eight, Florida. Number seven, Coastal Carolina. Um, look, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of hate for ranking Coastal Carolina seventh in the country. I don't care. I don't care. Coastal Carolina returns so many players from their team that went 12 and one last year. They have continuity. They're well coached. They're good on offense and defense and special teams in all three phases. They have a good quarterback. They run the football. They impose their will. And they've won all their games. They don't have the opportunity to play Oregon and USC and Washington State. They don't get to play against Texas and Oklahoma and Iowa State. They don't get to play Vanderbilt and South Carolina. They don't get to play those types of schedules. They can only play the people set in front of them, and they beat the heck out of them. They're my seventh-ranked team. Number six, Oregon. I like what they're doing under Mario Cristobal. Number five, Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma has a couple of near misses where they just barely pulled out wins, but they're a very talented team. Um, they have a good quarterback in Spencer Rattler, a good head coach. I think they can figure things out before the season ends. Number four, the Arkansas Razorbacks. Um, like I said, a surprise team for me. Uh, they came out of nowhere. But they have two of the better wins of any team in college football so far uh, in their dominant performance against Texas and against Texas A&M. Like, they won both of those games going away. They pistol-whipped both of those teams. And we're going to see what they're made of this week against Georgia. Number three, the Cincinnati Bearcats. Number two, Georgia. And number one overall, the Alabama Crimson Tide. Um, I got so much hate for having Alabama, having the audacity to have Alabama ranked second overall in the country coming into the season. And like I said, I was wrong. <laughs> I'll be the first to admit when I'm wrong, and I was wrong. Alabama is the number one team in the country. So that's our top 25. Again, our top 10 is Alabama, Georgia, Cincinnati, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Oregon, Coastal Carolina, Florida, Penn State, and Iowa. And a lot of those teams play each other this week. 
lot of those teams have really tough matchups, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. After this week, from here on out, we will update our top 25. Each week, we will share on Twitter and on the show as we have time. And before we transition into paranormal news, the last thing that I want to do is I want to share my In the Shed Solid 7 with you for week 5 of the college football season. What matchups do we like against the spread? Last week we went 6-1. and one. We raised our correct percentage up to 50%, and I felt great about our picks this week. I have a lot of questions, um, but we did the best we could, and this is what we think. I've got Arkansas plus 18.5 at Georgia. I think that game should be closer than 18.5 points. I've got Michigan plus two at Wisconsin. I think Michigan goes there and wins. Wisconsin has a great defense, but is absolutely inept at quarterback. They cannot throw the ball. They are trapped in like the 1880s. Like they just, they can't throw. The forward pass does not exist in Wisconsin other than Green Bay. I've got Duke plus 20 at North Carolina. North Carolina, who was ranked in the top 10, but has stumbled to two and two. And Duke, who has improved every week. I think North Carolina probably wins, but not by 20 points. I've got Memphis covering the spread at 11, at minus 11 at Temple on the road. Temple is not good. Memphis is. I have Rice covering the spread at minus 2.5 versus a disappointing Southern Miss football team. I have Texas A&M covering the spread as favorites at home versus Mississippi State. Michigan State covering as 10.5 point favorites hosting Western Kentucky. So those are my seven picks. Arkansas plus 18.5, Michigan plus 2, Duke plus 20. Memphis minus 11, Rice minus 2.5, Texas A&M minus 7, and Michigan State minus 10 and 5. We'll see how we do, and uh, you should be hearing this on Friday night and still have some time to do whatever you need to do with that information. So that's college football. We talked NFL. We talked a little bit of NBA. That's it for sports. Let's switch to this, the world of the paranormal. Our first story in the world of the paranormal takes us to the ocean. Yeah, the ocean. We getting salty, my babies. Dolphins alert rescue crew to save a lost swimmer who was stranded at sea for 12 hours. Dolphins are incredibly intelligent creatures, and amazingly, they're also famously compassionate towards humans. There are countless stories of dolphins lending people a helping flipper in dangerous situations, from warning off great white sharks to saving kids from drowning. One most recent example comes from Ireland, where a pod of dolphins helped rescue a stranded swimmer in the sea near Castle Gregory and County Kerry. The swimmer, an unnamed man in his 30s from County Down, was missing for almost 12 hours before he was spotted by Royal National Lifeboat Institution. Royal National Lifeboat Institution. Wow. That sounds way doper than the Coast Guard. (laughs) I'm a part of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. (laughs) The team underwent an extensive search after his clothes had been discovered on Castle Gregory Beach earlier in the day. His clothes. They discovered his clothes on the beach. And then they went looking, like, first of all, how'd they even know? Like, oh, his clothes are here. There's clothes on the beach. Let's go find the man that belongs to them. Like, that's, like, are they psychics? Like, how did they know that that meant anything was wrong? And secondarily, was this man a skinny dipper? They got lost in the, like, how did his clothes, we are missing some information. After a full day of searching at around 8.30 p.m., a lifeboat crew spotted a pod of dolphins surrounding the swimmer about two and a half miles off the coast. The man was conscious but was hypothermic and exhausted. 
he was immediately brought to the hospital where he is now recovering. The man told rescuers that he had intended to swim out to Mucklemore Rock, five miles out from where he set off at Castlegory Beach. However, he became stranded and freezing wearing only a pair of swimming trunks. Oh, okay, he had on swimming trunks. Why did they say they found his clothes and got worried then? Like, what, was it a suitcase full? Like, I don't... He was wearing appropriate swimming attire. Like, why would you paint it otherwise? That is bizarre. The animals surrounding him were later identified by conservationists as a population of bottlenose dolphins living in Scotland's Moray Firth. They had to have a conservationist to know what a bottlenose dolphin was. (laughs) They do not know sea creatures in Ireland. You don't know what a bottlenose dolphin is. Apparently you have never seen Flipper over there in Ireland. You just be hanging out, eating your potatoes, drinking your beer, chasing rainbows. The group has been spotted in the area since 2019, and lucky for the swimmer, they were around when he needed them. Due to the large size of the pod, they helped to draw attention to the lost swimmer. RNLI Coxswain Finbar O'Connell says there were a lot of dolphins around where the man was finally located. He added maybe they helped him in some way or another. Who knows? Well, um, not him, because he was unconscious and hypothermic, so he did not know, um... But might I suggest, and I'm just spitballing here, and I do I do like dolphins before y'all get on me. Don't don't report me to PETA, but might I just suggest that maybe, maybe the dolphins weren't helping the man? Like maybe like they posed a threat to him, maybe they were dangerous to him. Like it ain't say that they were like carrying him to shore, like they surrounded him. That seems offensive to me. Like, if I get surrounded by a group of people or animals, typically, typically it is not to reward me or to help me. Usually that means that I am in some type of danger. And because this man was unconscious, I wonder if maybe, maybe one of these dolphins bopped him with a bottlenose. I read that in the paranormal section because dolphins are so incredibly intelligent. We do not understand their language. We don't know what they'd be saying, but they have languages and dialects. And they are just about as smart as we are. And probably should not be kept in captivity. And that's my TED Talk. For our next story, we're going to stay in the ocean, but go to where it's cold outside. Penguins might be aliens, scientists say, after discovering Venus chemical in bird droppings. After the study, the scientists now believe that penguins could help them identify different types of organisms that exist in other worlds. We're going to go from dolphins possibly helping, a.k.a. attacking, to penguins might be aliens, because that's how we roll on this show. That's why you tune in to In the Shed with West, because we're the only place in the world you can find news coverage like this. Their distinctive waddle and black and white coats make them one of the most adorable creatures in the world. You can look at the moving in packs for hours and wonder what they're up to. But something about them might be otherworldly. At least that's what scientists are saying. I am intrigued. It is speculated that penguins could be aliens after scientists found traces of a chemical in their droppings that is also found 
on the planet Venus. The researchers from the UK were able to find traces of the chemical known as phosphine in the bird's poo. It has raised widespread speculation and questions about the origins of penguins because scientists are now struggling to explain how phosphine exists on Earth 38 million miles away from Venus. After the study, the scientists now believe that penguins could help them identify different types of organisms that exist in other worlds. To know more about the chemical traces, the scientists are now planning to study the lifestyle of a Gentoo penguin, which is common in the Falkland Islands. We're convinced the phosphine finding is real, but we don't know what's making it. There's some anaerobic bacteria that produce phosphine. It's found in pond slime and the guts of badgers and penguin guano, Dr. Dave Clemens of Imperial College London told the Daily Star. It may be to do with defense or signaling against competing bacteria, he added. In 2020, traces of the chemical were found in layers of gas surrounding Venus, which has a similar atmosphere to Earth. According to reports, the research on penguins and phosphine is being done ahead of the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. It will be unveiled from French Guinea on December 18th, according to NASA, and it will be able to detect life on other planets. The telescope will study deep space and serve as NASA's main observatory for the coming years. And it may answer the minutes-old question of are penguins extraterrestrial? If you know, my, my question is, and I'm not, I'm not a science expert by any stretch of the imagination, but my question is, if you know that this phosphine also shows up not just on the planet Venus, but in some bacteria, wouldn't it just make sense that maybe somehow the penguin came in contact with said bacteria or ate something that had the bacteria on it, that that should be what you figure out? I'm just saying. Um, if any creature that lives in the ocean is from another planet, it is not penguins who go in and out of the water, by the way. Um, it's octopuses. Not octopi. We, we've been over this. The correct pronunciation is octopuses. And octopuses are, in fact, aliens. We did a show about it one time. Go back and find it. <laughs> oh, man. Y'all killing me. This is funny. Naturally, from the ocean, we go to the Bible. Yes. The word of the Lord. Survey says religious Americans are less likely to believe in aliens. According to a recent survey by Pew Research, religiously affiliated Americans are less likely to believe in the existence of intelligent life off-world. The survey, which was conducted June 14th through 24th of this year, with a national sample of 10,417 adults, revealed that 51% of Protestants believe in aliens, which was far less than the 65% of non-religiously affiliated Americans who also held that notion. White evangelicals, however, were most unlikely to believe in aliens, Premier Christian News reported. On the other hand, 65% of white and non-evangelical Protestants believe in extraterrestrial life. Additional religious groups such as black Protestants make up 55% who believe, and Catholics at 67% who believe also express their belief in aliens. Atheists and agnostics were found to be the groups most likely to say that there is intelligent life beyond Earth at 85% each. White evangelicals were also one of the most unlikely groups to believe that the existence of intelligent life was evidenced by UFOs at only 35%, 
with atheists expressing further disbelief at 31%. Pew Research also noted that the consistency of attending religious services was a key factor in one's beliefs in aliens. For instance, 44% of respondents who attended religious services frequently said there is intelligent life, while 66% of monthly or yearly attendees believed likewise. Additionally, people who seldom or never attended religious service at all were the most likely group to affirm their belief in intelligent life, with 75% saying yes. American adults who placed a high value on religion were less likely to believe in aliens than those who did not. About 49% of respondents say religion is very important, as opposed to 83% who said religion was not at all important. The survey also found that prayer was found to be a contributing factor as well, with 54% of religious Americans who pray daily to say that aliens exist, while in contrast, respondents who seldom or never pray were most likely to believe in intelligent life outside of Earth. I thought that that was interesting, um, that people who are more involved in practicing their religion or in Christian belief um, that they are less likely to believe in extraterrestrial life. I thought that that was interesting. That was an interesting connection. I wonder why that might be. I wish there was a follow-up study. Um, you believe in some supernatural when it comes to the issues of God and angels and demons and the Bible and all the miracles that happen therein. But when it comes to UFOs and intelligent life on other planets, um, they don't believe. And... Uh, I don't know. I'm just I'm just thinking out loud, but I wonder if maybe it's because in a lot of people's minds the idea of intelligent life existing outside of Earth challenges their conception of God and of the truth of the Bible. Um, it doesn't really challenge mine. I don't know that there is intelligent life anywhere other than Earth. I'm not so Earth-centric either. The thing that I know above all else is that I really don't know a lot. <laughs> I, I really don't. I really don't know a lot. Um, I do believe in God, and I have a relationship with God, and I'm a spiritual person. Um, God is far bigger and creative, uh, more creative and more intelligent than me, and uh, God's in control. And I don't know where all, what all God created. I just know that I'm thankful that God did, and uh, I'm okay with that. Some people are not, but I am okay with that. So I thought that was cool and interesting and worth noting, so I shared it with you, my tools. For our last story of the episode, we go to the air. Pan Am Flight 914, the truth to what really happened. Time travel may be a stunning concept, and it has been a significant part of lots of movies, and many people wonder if this could be a real thing. However, there is an incident of time travel that took place in 1955 with the incident of Pan Am Flight 914. This flight is a mystery that has driven lots of historians and skeptics crazy for years. You may be wondering if this is possible and how this incident happened. So what happened on Pan Am Flight 914? This mysterious incident started on July 2, 1955, when Pan Am Flight 914 was scheduled to take off to New York from its airport. It was believed that the plane was transporting 57 passengers and four crew members to Miami. This looks like a normal flight for everyone on board, but it was not. Some mysterious things happened to their flight, which led to this bizarre story. The story of the disappearance of Pan Am Flight 914. After the plane took off from New York, the air traffic controllers lost the signal of the Pan Am Flight 914 for a while. The flight completely disappeared from the radar, and no one had a clue what had happened. 
Furthermore, there was no indication that the plane crashed somewhere remotely and no sign of the passengers' bodies or crew members on the flight. After an intense investigation, the authorities concluded that the plane crashed and the crews and passengers were dead. Since they cannot locate the plane, they believe the plane had crashed in the sea since the plane was not found on land. The airlines then compensated the families of everyone that was on the flight with death benefits. However, after 37 years, a remarkable incident occurred. On September 9, 1992, at Caracas's airport, Venezuela's capital, an incredible thing happened. A DC-4 Douglas aircraft showed up out of nowhere, and the airport's radar did not pick it up. An air traffic controller named Juan de la Corte, with the rest of his team, saw this mysterious DC-4 Douglas plane, but were surprised that their radar had not caught it. Juan de la Corte then got a contact signal from the aircraft in question. Another surprising thing is that the pilot managed to appear without being traced on their radar. The pilot then asked, where are we? Then the pilot shocked everybody. We are Pan American Airways Flight 914 flying to Miami from New York, and we have 57 passengers and four crew members on board. The initial report then continued that the Pan Am Flight 914 had gone in the wrong direction by about 1,800 kilometers. This statistic confused the air traffic controller, and Juan then asked the pilot some questions. These included whether they experienced a crash if they had failed to make contact with anyone. The plane was later cleared to land, and it was what Juan heard afterwards that made this story even more mysterious. Everything was going to plan as the plane touched down. However, Juan then heard a baffling report from the pilot that the plane was scheduled to land in Miami at 9.55 a.m. on July 2, 1955. Juan confirmed to the pilot that he is landing in Caracas, and the day was May 21, 1992. Furthermore, Juan was surprised when he first saw the plane. Juan was shocked at how outdated the Pan Am Flight 914 looked. Juan described the aircraft with this specific term, rugged. Unlike the other aircraft that looked new and modern, the plane looked like it was from another universe. However, he tried to overlook its appearance and continued on communication with the pilot. Juan was more surprised when the pilot erupted into a fit of panic and yelled, Oh my God, after hearing what year it was. Their control team could also hear the passengers screaming and panicking from the radio. This, In response, Juan ordered the security guards to go to the front and escort people off the plane. The air control team believed that the security team could help calm the crew and passengers of the Pan Am Flight 914 and escort them to the airport. However, the event took a sudden turn as the pilot instructed the security not to get any closer to the plane. Juan then heard on the radio as the pilot was screaming and saying no, don't get near, we're leaving now. The plane then took off and it disappeared from the radar as it headed into the sky. According to Juan, the plane was untraceable on the radar immediately. The airport then sent three jets to try and track down the aircraft. However, they were not able to locate their whereabouts. However, the story did not end there as there was another report that claims to have identified the whereabouts of the plane and its passengers hours after the Caracas incident. There was one report that the flight landed at the airport it was supposed to land at a few hours after it departed abruptly from Caracas. The staff at Miami Airport was also shocked about the plane's arrival, just like Juan de la Corte. 
As the plane arrived, the staff checked the back office and confirmed that the same plane had taken off in New York on July 2, 1955. The staff at Miami Airport then had lots of questions about the mysterious plane. It was after a few hours of interrogation that the airport decided what they would do with the crew and the passengers. They decided to allow the passengers and crew to go home and be reunited with their families. However, something creepier happened then. The biggest surprise of all was not that they were reunited with their long-lost relatives who believed they died years ago. The surprising thing was how they looked. All of the passengers and crew on the flight looked just like they were when they first took off in 1955. However, their families were 37 years older, and they did not age at all. It was also a mystery that the plane could still run after so many years. As more people learned about this bizarre incident, the more questions were generated. Even now, there's no correct answer to the numerous questions, the first question being, where was the plane during those years? And the second being, if this incident is true, how are the passengers and crew alive, well, and unaged? Investigations into the incident occurred. A YouTube channel that tries to find the truth about supernatural phenomena, do-do-do-do-do-do, phenomena, do-do-do-do, Phenomena. Do 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 da 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 da. Tried to solve the issue. On this episode, the host gave a detailed account of all the information that he collected over the years about the mystery of Pan Am Flight 914. He then concluded that he did not believe the story at all. However, he found some fascinating details from different sources that did not prove or reject the validity of the story. Theory 1. The Bermuda Triangle According to a theory presented, it was believed that the Bermuda Triangle had something to do with the mysterious disappearance of the plane. This is because lots of planes have been subjected to incidents attributed to the Bermuda Triangle. There have been reports that the Triangle claims numerous planes and ships over the last 70 years, with the most recent cases happening in 2017. However, investigators did not believe that the Bermuda Triangle had anything to do with Pan Am Flight 914. Theory 2. Fake news. There's actually little proof that suggests that Pan Am 914 actually happened. This is because the only newspaper that mentioned the event on three separate occasions is Weekly World News. This is why it's very difficult to believe the story. Some articles suggest that the aircraft reappeared after 30 years, while others state that the event occurred 37 years after the plane first took off. The more details you look into, the more confusing the report gets. Theory 3. Juan de la Corte was not a real person. The newspaper articles not only contradict themselves, but they also use different images for the same key figure, Juan de la Corte, the air traffic controller in Caracas. Although they have the same name in both accounts, a newspaper used different photos for him, which make the story more confusing. Although most evidence shows that there's a high chance that Weekly World News may be guilty of reporting fake news and being a satire site, there's an interesting detail that may prove that the event actually happened. It looked like something happened when Juan was trying to calm the passengers and pilots flying away again. At the moment, it was reported that the pilot dropped something that fell out of the aircraft's entrance. This was a classic Birch pocket calendar that was made from the year 1955, which is the exact year that the plane disappeared. So what do you think about this incident? What do you think really happened? Did Pan Am Flight 914 survive time travel or did it never exist at all?
I thought that was a really interesting story and a fun one to talk about on this week's show. Um, the newspaper that reported this is not a reliable source. Like it's it's a uh, um, it's about on par with the National Enquirer, like um, epic stories of paranormal things that don't pan out or that there's no evidence of. Um, but it's interesting because this particular story is one that has persisted and one that has branched out from just this one lone newspaper. And it's been uh, made into different TV shows and movies that have been based on it, but uh, it's actually considered to be a legitimate conspiracy theory. And uh, people have posed the question of whether or not this actually happened. Like, did this actually happen was a real thing, and it has been covered up. That the only people that would report on it because of the cover-up was so good is a publication that would not be trusted. Like, who would who would care if the story was put in something that no one would believe if they read it, that everyone would assume was satire or was false or was fake news? Then who would care? But there have been times, there have been times that publications like this have also been the first ones or the only ones to get the most outrageous stories correct because they're the only ones with the guts to print it. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened here. I think probably this was just a fanciful story that was fun and it was put out there. But it's a fun thing to entertain and it's a fun thing to think about. And there's a certain TV show um, that sounds a lot like this that people are uh, really into watching right now. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to share this on the show. So what do you think happened with Pan Am Flight 914? Was it a real thing? Did it exist? Did it time travel? Did it disappear? Was the whole thing made up? Get at us. Email us at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com and let us know. Find us on Twitter at intheshed4. I would love to hear your comments about it. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 24. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at intheshed4. Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, talk college and NFL football, and investigate together whether the moon landing was indeed faked. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best new show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scout. Meemaw, we made it!